veterans come home from war with shifted personalities, survival guilt after having lost comrades in battle, denial of feelings, and shattered selves. A holding environment of safety, if they ever had one, is lost. How can a clinician gain the veteran's trust and create the transitional space necessary for therapy that heals? In this episode, we will listen to Andrew Berry's paper, A Psychoanalytic Approach to Working with Veterans, where he takes a view of war veterans from an interpersonal perspective by seeking the deeper psychological meaning of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Exploring the veteran's relationships with others provides meaning without which healing cannot be attained. Andrew Berry holds a PhD and a second doctorate in psychology. He practices as a psychologist and psychoanalyst in Niskayuna, New York. He specializes in PTSD and other mental health needs of veterans. He has published on this topic and lectures at analytic institutes and both national and international conferences. He completed a four-year psychoanalytic training program from the William Allison White Institute in New York City in 2012. I am Monica D'Alençon with Talks on Psychoanalysis, the IPA podcast devoted to topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide, featuring the original voices of the authors. This podcast series, published by the International Psychoanalytical Association, is part of the activities of the IPA Communication Committee and is produced by the IPA podcast editorial team. Head of the podcast editorial team is Gaetano Pellegrini. Editing and post-production, Massimiliano Guerrieri. Please check the details of the episode to find more information about the author and to find the reference to the original paper, published in Division Review, a quarterly psychoanalytic forum in 2018. And to stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. Before I begin this presentation proper, I would like to tell a clinical anecdote that started me on the journey uh, to this podcast, as well as the rest of my career. I started my career as a diagnostician in a state-run supermax, and it was my job to interview inmates and suggest programs. And one of the uh, inmates caught himself a federal charge and it was alcohol related. And it turned out he was a Vietnam veteran. And one of my standard questions for veterans, especially combat veterans, is if they, uh, who they miss the most in terms of perhaps seeing their best friend killed right in front of them or something similar in battle. And what this guy told me was a complete surprise. He gave me uh, a clinical insight that's that was worth and is worth gold and is still paying off dividends decades later he looked at me and all the color surged to his face and tears started streaming down his cheeks and he said doc he says i miss me i used to be a nice guy and what this suggested to me was that he entered the service as one person And he came out 
at the end of his time in service as a completely different person. And he didn't know who he was anymore. It was a shift of personality. I'm not trying to suggest a personality disorder, a shift of personality from personality A to personality B. And the more I thought about that, the more to me that it stands to reason that the interpersonal psychoanalytic approach would be an appropriate tool for therapy because it's a study of relationships and how relationships with people change. That being said, on with the presentation. In Freud's earliest writings on war neurosis, as it was then called, his first observations were those of a surviving soldier mourning the death of a brother in arms. I found this striking as Freud does not initially speak of edible conflict, libido, or any sort of interaction among id, I'm sorry, among id ego or superego in these seminal writings. He speaks instead of how one friend misses another. And at its heart, this is an interpersonal perspective. My presentation, my podcast today is on the interpersonal aspect of working with veterans, whereas the symptoms of war neurosis here in 2022 are known as post-traumatic stress disorder, a diagnosis more often associated with fear or uh, with biological dysfunction. I draw my theory uh, from my training at the White Institute Uh, specifically from Harry Stack Sullivan, who was a veteran himself, one of the Institute's eminent founders in his landmark work, The Interpersonal Theory of Psychiatry. To Sullivan, pathology exists because of pathology in the patient's relationships. No psyche exists in a vacuum in Sullivan's theory, even when alone. The totality of a patient's existence comes from relationships with those living and dead. From the interpersonalist perspective, the symptoms of PTSD, while certainly glaring and present, are not quite as monolithic as in other paradigms, and certainly not as reductive as a mere collection of symptoms to be medicated and nothing more. Reworded, if we focus solely on the symptom of relief of PTSD symptoms, the symptom relief of PTSD, we are at risk for missing entirely the deeper psychological meaning of PTSD. And I submit this meaning can be found in relationships with others. And deepest rela- deepest levels of healing cannot be attained without exploring these relationships. I would also submit that the interpersonalist approach focuses on early relationships affecting current relationships. What's past is prologue. This is of significance analytically because a child's first relationships with caregivers are tantamount to being their first relationships with people in positions of supreme authority. And relationships with authority figures is the bedrock upon which the military does or does not function. Jonathan Shea, in his book, Achilles in Vietnam, points out that the subtitle to the Iliad is The Rage of Achilles. Achilles is incensed by the betrayal of what is right by his leadership. Shea points out that betrayal by a trusted military leader may be the most traumatic aspect of combat experience. And I have often countered veterans uh, battling with PTSD symptoms who concomitantly are also reeling from years of deeply conflicted relationships with people in positions of authority. And the interaction between the two phenomena can often be thought of as an extreme illustration of psychological potentiation, highly analogous to chemical potentiation, i.e. mixing alcohol and barbiturates and just how lethal this can be. 
Imagine a child playing on the playground and skinning his knee. At best, we can hope that the child goes to a mother or a father or a nurse or whomever, and the injury is not only attended to in a physical sense with disinfectant and a bandage, but also in a psychological sense, i.e. the authority figure making the child feel soothed and safe and not needlessly blamed for the injury. Now, what if the same injury occurs and the child is afraid to turn to an authority figure or otherwise has no authority figure to turn to at all. There are many possibilities, of course, such as the child's injury either gets ignored or improperly attended to, not to mention the interaction between the child and caregiver who could be cold, angry, indifferent, ridiculing, dismissive, or could exhibit any other form of negative emotion. These children will not only bear uh, physical scarring, but also the emotional scarring of such incidences in a cumulative sense. Through repeated, less than optimal experiences with authority figures, trust in self and the outside world is understandably eroded, if not obliterated. Now, what if this child grows up seeking a non-blood surrogate family because of coming from circumstances of abuse or an unavailable parent or set of parents? We're not having any parents or caregivers at all. Already, when the child, now an adolescent, signs on the dotted line, takes the oath and enlists, he or she is at risk for having the emotional makeup of someone who could have a very hard time with taking orders from any kind of authority figure, no matter how capable. And what if the authority figure, in the form of either officer or enlisted superior, is either incompetent or abusive, especially during and after combat tours where the seeds of PTSD are sown? What if a combat veteran becomes increasingly symptomatic as denoted by psychiatric criteria while still on active duty? This can lead to disciplinary problems and puts the veteran at risk for, in some cases, less than honorable discharges. I have had the Herculean difficulty of reaching many, but not all of the veterans who have suffered such fates while on active duty and who have experienced childhoods replete with neglect or abuse in my consulting room. As a psychologist and psychoanalyst, I have to remember that I too am an authority figure of sorts, along with active duty military and VA healthcare providers the veterans have encountered before coming to see me. Often it feels uh, from the intake onward that I have been put on notice that I will have to go to great lengths to earn their trust. In such situations, I have found that PTSD symptomology per se decreases in size and importance in a matter of speaking, while the interpersonal issues conversely increase and markedly so. Veterans want to be heard and not judged. Unfortunately, many clinicians often do judge, and I have to work through additional damage from this as well. When I work with veterans who have already had experience with clinicians who simply do not understand what they are dealing with, this adds additional authority figures to an already long list of people perceived by the veteran as incapable or unwilling to help them in any other way other than the path of least resistance via medication alone. Another phenomena I have encountered along the along these lines are the clinical experiences where this is really no where there really is no relationship other than being interviewed for 15 minutes, being tagged with a diagnosis and being prescribed a medication. This process usually involves little to no eye contact and I find 
There is no difference between this unfortunate occurrence and receiving inadequate attention to a skinned knee. By the way, I am in no way equating a skinned knee with PTSD. However, the relationships between caregivers and veterans in both scenarios can be appallingly similar. In both scenarios, hope for a successful outcome is left wanting, and somehow, and being somehow further damaged is often understandably anticipated. Some patients may even provoke it, perhaps as a test of their clinician or of themselves. I have often heard from veterans who have been on active duty for long periods of time, sometimes for decades, that part of them still feels the same age as when they went in, which offers us the idea of a psyche which retains aspects of being an emotionally immature 17-year-old, combined with another aspect of being thousands of years old. In cases of combat veterans who have seen enough blood, gore, and death to last a thousand lifetimes. To this end, Hans Lowald's idea of reparenting and analysis is what constitutes therapeutic action comes to mind. By this, I mean that in addition to attempting to heal the profound levels of trauma and loss from childhood through combat, we are faced with veterans dealing with some emotional coping mechanisms on the same levels as those of teenagers, especially as they work through the interpersonal morass of issues with authority figures. Which authority figures can they trust? Can they come to grips with their own authority issues and have a better understanding of their own emotional immaturity and somehow work through it? Hearkening back to my opening re reference to Freud, the interpersonal nature of loss of brothers and sisters in arms must be addressed in treatment as an issue of paramount importance. I have heard many combat veterans refer to losing their youth and innocence during their time of war and never being able to experience relationships the same way again afterward. And I suggest that along with losing one's youth and innocence, that the moment they lose a brother or sister on the battlefield, that part of them arrests developmentally as well. They are robbed of the opportunity to survive the war together, to maintain an unparalleled friendship afterward, and finally to grow old together. So when a deep emotional bond is violently disrupted by death, the image in the 17-year-old's mind is frozen in time of the death of another 17-year-old. And I would submit to all of you that that part of the veteran who survives to tell the tale dies on that day as well. And grieving becomes a lifelong process of survivor guilt and obsessional thinking of what if I had done this or if I, die, if I had done that, would he or she or they still be alive? As analysts, when we hear a veteran say to us, I lost my brother or my sister that day, while such a remark may not be biologically true, in a psychical sense, it is absolutely and resoundingly true, as they depend on each other 24-7, 365, for their very lives, which are often saved many times over. And when we hear, and as we hear about their interactions with each other prior to the loss, Countertransferential images come to us of boys and girls playing together, working together, scrapping occasionally with each other, and fighting the enemy together. Life afterwards requires more will and drive to succeed and somehow bear this cross, post-trauma and loss. 
Christmases and the holiday season is no longer merry. Birthdays are no longer happy. And Memorial Day, Veterans Day festivities invoke all kinds of feelings, up to and including the thousand-yard stare on the faces of the veteran who has seen more than he or she can bear and has lost brothers and sisters with whom to share the burden. This journey begins as the new recruit is trained to essentially have no emotions because they are an impediment to mission completion. This suppression becomes ostensibly set in stone by combat trauma and loss and the numbing effect that it has on the veteran who then takes it home. Paradoxically, many warriors believe they have finally become quote unquote good at their job when they can no longer experience emotions when terrible things happen. This is summed up in the common expression among them that it, and I quote, wasn't nothing. But those who have never been baptized by battle need to be careful not to take this denial of feeling at face value. Family members often experience this post-traumatic emotional deep freeze and distance most harshly and are at a loss uh, and are at a loss to know how to deal with a different person than the one they once knew. Sometimes I have heard vets say they either cannot feel anything or that they are afraid of feelings and being overwhelmed by them. And so the emotional suppression continues. It's as if the returning veteran remains in combat mode, hypervigilant and expecting attack. And those who have known no war cannot relate to this. The only thing we can do is to create a Latter-day holding environment of safety, as outlined by Winnicott in his theory of the parent-child relationship. Perhaps we can understand trauma itself as an undoing of the holding environment, a peeling away of the entwined layers of interpersonal safety developed over the course of development. From this perspective, we may be able to understand that the path forward is in a reweaving of the holding environment. This requires new interactions and new interpersonal development. But isn't this a basic aspect of all psychoanalytic psychotherapy and all human growth? We will see in veterans deep scars of trauma and primitive mind states in our consulting room, and we have to put forth our best efforts to provide a reparenting experience that heals and does not infantilize or re-traumatize. Lastly, I would like to invoke the idea of witnessing in our consulting room and the powerful effect that it can have on veterans once we have earned their trust. Many cannot bring themselves to tell what they have seen with anyone other than those who they served with. Often this reflects the deep conviction that such events and the interpersonal experiences that resonate with them could not be believed, understood, or even accepted by anyone who wasn't there. That being said, occasionally I've worked with those who cannot live another day without finally being able to speak of their trauma aloud. I have been told that I am the first to hear about it for whatever reason. And finally, letting someone else know goes a long way to, re to relieving intolerable pressure as a way of beginning to reunify the veteran's shattered self. The projection the projection of that self into the, the interpersonal space of the therapy may be the first step in that long process. Following Winnicott, perhaps it would still be better to say the transitional space of therapy. In this way, the veteran who comes home in a psychically fragmented state, no longer knowing who he or she is in relation to himself or herself or others, can take the first step forward toward post-traumatic self-knowledge 
and blaze a new developmental path forward.